Now, living life in the year 2020 can be a bit crazy. Do you ever find that? Just seems a little bit crazy sometimes. There's some things that feel amazing, and then other days, it just feels like everything is falling apart. Do you know what I mean? Kind of feels a little bit odd like that. And I think there's a lot to celebrate. We've got a lot to celebrate as those who live in the year 2020. It's uh, never been easier in many ways to talk about issues and topics that used to be taboo subjects, even just a matter of years ago. And that's something we should celebrate, that we should be grateful for, that we do live in a world where we're able to talk about things like this. And yet, while there is this new openness and uh, apparent tolerance, people are increasingly terrified, terrified of saying the wrong thing. In many ways, it's safer than ever before to share your opinions. It's easier than ever before. And yet, in many ways, it's far more dangerous. You might say something, you might text something, maybe even a private message to someone who thought was a friend, and all of a sudden you can be labelled as something completely undesirable. You can end up, before you know it, losing your reputation, losing your job, losing all sorts of things, even with the accusations not being true. In 2016, leading gay activist Peter Tatchell made the claim that it's so important as a society that we defend free speech. Even the free speech of those who disagree with us about significant issues such as LGBT issues. And for wanting to defend free speech, Peter Tatchell was completely trashed by many. He was labelled a bigot and hateful and people were told that they should disinvite him to deplatform them from speaking events and university engagement. Another example, in an interview last year, Mario Lopez, better known as Slater from Saved by the Bell. For any of you 90s kids out there, you would have loved this show too. He had a similar experience. Now, Mario Lopez is an actor who is known for his public support of LGBT rights. And last year in an interview, he shared his beliefs that three-year-olds were too young to be able to pick their own gender. And for saying this, he was widely criticised by celebrities in human rights organisations. And after the mass onslaught, where people claimed he was being uh, uh, harsh and transphobic and risking the lives of children, he eventually made a public apology, saying that his comments had been ignorant and insensitive. Now, I could have listed many more of these stories, and we're seeing them countless. Every week, there is another one like them. They're on our screens day after day. And the more we see them, the more we see the onslaught that comes at someone who dares to share an opinion that doesn't fit into this year's right and wrong, the more we see that, the more it puts a fear in our own hearts. We see if it's happening to them, then what could happen to me? It affects us, whether consciously or not. Now, it makes complete sense that things like this would happen because these are really significant times. As a society and as individuals, we're trying to work out what we believe. We're trying to get answers to the big questions. And nothing hits home more than questions of identity, of gender, of sexuality, because we feel them at our deepest. Who am I? Am I normal? Is there something wrong with me? 
Will I ever be able to have sex? Will I ever be able to experience true love? Will I ever be able to have my own children or start my own family? These are deeply powerful and personal questions. Over the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about friendship. And I want to tell you a bit about one of my closest friends, John. So this is a little bit about him. First of all, both John and I went to World School. That's a good Somerset name, isn't it? World School. That's actually why it's called World School with all the girls. World School. John went to the same school. John was also an usher at my brother's wedding. Here's a nice little picture of us from that day five or six years ago. John is extremely generous. Just over a year ago, I had my iPhone stolen. And John got in touch with me to say that he wanted to buy me a new iPhone, which he did, and told me not to tell anyone. (laughs) So sorry about that, John, if you ever listen to this. John does an incredible impression of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. It's so good. It's so good. You need to see it. And finally, John is attracted to the same sex. So let me ask you a question. What should John do with his sexuality? What is the best thing for him in terms of living out his attractions, his feelings, his identity? How should John live these things out? Well, let me tell you another story about uh, another friend that will sound completely unrelated, but it's completely linked. A few weeks ago, I went to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. Anyone ever been there before, the observatory in Greenwich? Cool. So if you're into space, or even if you're not, it's a fun day out. It's good. And I went along with my friend Mus, and we were um, exploring around, and they had one of these screening rooms where they were showing a video. And it was all about the creation of the universe. So we sat down and we watched this video. And at the start, it's pitch black. And then the narrator says this. Imagine nothingness. Then about 14 billion years ago, all of time and space exploded into existence. And after the film was over, I I turned to Mus to discuss it. I said, don't you find it really interesting how um, at the beginning of the video, it talked about how everything came from nothing. And his response, I thought, summed up really, really well. It's a guy who's not a Christian, but this is his reflection. He said, yeah, it was almost like they missed out a chapter of the story. Now, I thought it was such a great way to word it, how must it It was like one chapter of the story, a key chapter, chapter one of the story, had been ripped out of the book, of the story of the universe. And the jagged edges of the missing pages were plain for all to see and yet were left without explanation. There was no mention of the fact that they had no answer to the biggest question of how everything can come from nothing. It was a colossal sweeping under the carpet. So what is the connection between my friend John being same-sex attracted and going to see a video about space? Well, they're completely linked. And here's the link. What you believe about the universe affects what you believe about everything else. What you believe about the universe affects what you believe about everything else. 
They're completely linked. What you believe about the universe affects what you believe about life and death and love and marriage and singleness and sex and sexuality. They're intrinsically linked. How so? Well, at the heart of it all, the key question is this. What is life all about? What's it all about? Another way to ask that question would be to say, what story are you living in? See, we all live in one of the great stories of the universe. But the truth is, many of us believe that story without ever questioning it. Perhaps you grew up in a religious context and have just kind of received something, but never thought, well, why do I believe it? Or maybe you grew up in a context where there was no faith, there was nothing like that. And just like most people in our culture, you have eaten something, you have digested something about the story of the universe without even questioning and asking why to the biggest questions facing humans. So let's look at those two stories right now. First of all, the story of the universe where there is no God. Now this story goes that there is no creator, there's no divine being, there's no higher purpose, Ultimately, we live, we die, and that's the end of the story. That's it. There's nothing spiritual, there's nothing transcendent, nothing other, nothing eternal, nothing divine. We are simply a clump of cells, an incredible, highly evolved life form floating through the cosmos. Now, creative genius and outspoken atheist Tim Minchin says this, it's an incredibly exciting thing, this one meaningless life of yours. Now, I can definitely understand why people come to this conclusion, why they can believe this, that life is meaningless. And in many ways, that belief can be freeing in releasing. It can help explain why things don't always make sense. Why life seems to include so much pain and suffering, and often it just seems to be through sheer randomness. Why do these things happen? I can't understand. Well, if there is no creator and no purpose, then we don't need to find meaning. We don't need to feel unfair. It also takes the pressure and responsibility away from life. You can try to live a certain way if you want to, but you don't have to. You can get involved in good causes, but only if you want to, or they make you feel better. There's no higher being saying you must. You can find your own meaning, but only if you want to. It's an appealing position in many ways. But what are the problems with such a view? What are some of the shadow sides of such a view? If we're simply a clump of cells created by no one and for no purpose, why care for others? Why care for others? Now, of course, people who don't believe in God do care for others. I have loads of friends who aren't Christians or don't have any faith, and they can be very, very caring. There are many caring atheists. But the question still stands, why care? Why do it? Because it feels right? Because it helps you or helps the species on its evolutionary journey? But what if it doesn't do those things? Because if this belief is followed through to its natural conclusion, 
it arrives at the position that human beings don't have intrinsic value. We're just a clump of cells. And that massively affects how we treat people, hugely. In a recent debate with atheist Matt Delahunty, Glenn Scrivener asked this, gets to the root of things. He asked, would you agree that all members of the human family, no matter what their achievements, no matter what their attributes, are worthy of all provision and protection? And Dillahunty replied, I've no idea. Now this has massive ramifications. If we say that someone doesn't have inbuilt intrinsic value, that instead is based on their utility or their usefulness to us, then we can end their lives if they're not considered useful or valuable enough. And this isn't just theory, this has been a reality. The Nazis said this of disabled people. They don't add any value to our society. In fact, they make our lives worse, and so let's get rid of them. And in our own country, we've often said this of the disabled too. Talking to a mother in 2014 about what to do if she found out she was pregnant with a Down syndrome baby, Richard Dawkins, probably the world's most prominent atheist, said this to the mother about having a Down syndrome baby. Abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. It's not just Richard Dawkins who believes that. It's the norm in our country to think they, that babies with Down syndrome have less value. In our country, in our nation, we have bought 90% of babies who are discovered to have Down syndrome. Why am I sharing this? You might say, well, this all sounds very philosophical. This all sounds a bit academic. What has this got to do, anything to do with me or the question of sexuality? It has everything to do with it. Because this couldn't be more relevant. What you believe about the story of the universe matters. It affects what we say about who has value, who deserves to live, and who deserves to die. These are matters of life and death. So we have to ask ourselves an all-important question. Who decides what's right and wrong? I ask you that question. Who decides what's right and wrong? Is it me and my truth? Is it society? Or is it something else? And we all have an answer to those questions, whether we consciously know it or not. And you can know your answer by the way you think about things, your attitudes, your actions. Because the story you live in is the story you live out. Look at yourself to find your answer. And what you believe about the universe affects life, death, sex, and sexuality. So that's one story. That's one way of viewing the universe. What about another? Well, this is the story of the universe from the Bible. And the Bible gives us an insight it paints a picture of how from the beginning, God existed. He was from eternity past. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, in perfect loving unity. And out of their love, 
out of their creativity, it overflowed into the creation of a world that they could love. They created everything, exploded into the existence at the command of his word. And God said, it is good. He made man and woman. Two sexes, not one. In many ways, so, so similar. Man and woman, so, so similar. Yet in many ways, so very different. He made us with physical bodies and said, it's good. They're good. They're not meant to be abused or mistreated. God made us, it says, in his image. Now, what does this mean? Well, first of all, it means we have value. You're not just a clump of cells. You are made in God's image, formed by a creator in his likeness. Secondly, there's an explanation as to how it all began. You don't have to live with this huge leap of faith that everything came from nothing. There's an explanation as to why it all began. You're here on purpose. It wasn't just a cosmic fluke, a cosmic accident. And it means we're part of something bigger. We are not the center of the universe. It's not all about me. And sex is about something bigger. Sex is not just a physical act. A wedding isn't just some over-expensive party, but points to something more. In Genesis 2.24, it explains this. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in Ephesians 5.31, the Apostle Paul explains even further what this picture of marriage and sex is. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is about two different people, two different sexes, man and woman, coming together in love and commitment to proclaim the message of a far more wonderful, a far more significant eternal union that of Jesus and his bride, his people, the church. But the story keeps going. After the perfect creation, humanity, we chose to turn our own way, to turn our back on God. Sin entered the world and it twisted and corrupted all things. And now all people are broken Our bodies and minds and our souls and sex and sexuality bear that brokenness. It'd be a pretty sad ending if that was it. But it wasn't the end of the story. God didn't just sit in heaven as some evil and condemnatory, hateful ruler in the sky judging us and throwing lightning bolts. No, he entered into our earth. And he came not to condemn but to save. He entered into humanity, Jesus, knowing the feeling of rejection and pain. Every struggle you've ever known, he felt. And then he died. He was murdered, the perfect spotless lamb, taking on himself the sin of the world, conquering sin. And then three days later, he rose again and ascended, showing that he had conquered death and now is preparing a place for those who know him. This is the great story of God, the gospel, the good news. 
So what are the implications? What are the implications of the good news story, of God's gospel story, especially in this area of sexuality? Well, firstly, this. All are the same and all are welcome. I want to be completely honest. Churches have often done terribly at this, really badly. We've made certain people feel less welcome than others. We've ranked sin and said, these are the really bad ones, and these are the ones we'll never talk about. We've made a hierarchy. We've gone on uh, to, to preach hard on certain things and completely ignored other sins. And we haven't always spoken with grace or love. And that is completely wrong. Any teaching that you have heard that says you are not welcome in church because of your story or your past, any teaching that says you are worse than anyone else is completely wrong. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the message of Jesus. The gospel message is that all of us are on the same playing field. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned. Each and every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are broken and contaminated by sin after the fall. And let me say this again. I've said it in previous weeks and I'll say it again now. All of us have sinned sexually. It's not just those who have done certain things or have certain orientations or temptations, but all of us. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is making it clear. We are all guilty of sexual sin. It's why saying that one person is worse or believing that you're better than anyone else is just so naive. So naive. And in case there was any doubt, sexual sinners include myself too. Just because I've been celibate throughout my life doesn't mean I haven't sinned sexually many times. I have. I have this war within me that wants to honour God, yet at the same time live by my own rules and wants to use people as objects for my own desires. I know exactly what it feels like to have the Holy Spirit say to me, John, don't do that. Don't go to that place. Don't open that webpage. Don't reply to that text. I know what it feels like to hear that voice and to switch it off and do it anyway to put God's voice on mute and choose sin. I've been there. And because we're all in the same boat, each and every one of us, whether you're a leader or you've been in here for 10 minutes, each of us can be open about our lives. We can share about our struggles. And that's the community we want to create. We're not there yet. We're trying. It's currently possible in certain pockets and for certain people, and we are doing better. I love how we had events like the Let's Talk About Sex event. That was great, wasn't it? Just seeing people sharing about the real things they're going through, 
talking about how their story doesn't necessarily fit the kind of perfect cookie-cutter Christian experience and saying, look, I want to be free from the shame of this and I want to wrestle with sin and choose God. I love that. That was so powerful. I love that. We're beginning to create a culture where that's becoming more normal, but we're not quite there yet. Now, let me be clear. Talking about our sin and our struggles is not the same as saying that sin is no big deal. It's not the same thing. What we're doing is recognizing that we are all sinners in desperate need of God's grace. All of us will struggle with the temptation to sin. It's what we choose to do with that temptation that's important. Do we ignore God and say, I'm going to put you on mute, I'm going to follow through with that temptation? Or do we say, no, I'm going to choose God's way? And when we have moments when we do give in and we do sin, what do we do? Well, we repent to God, we confess to others, and then we receive the wonderful grace that Jesus has for us. In Mark 2.17, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying we are all sick. We need to recognize we're sick if we ever want to get well. And as a result of that, because we are all sick, it means that church is not meant to feel like the waiting room for a job interview, but more like the waiting room for a doctor's office, for a doctor's surgery. Do you know what I mean? So you like you know when you go to a, an interview for a job and you're all kind of in your best clothes and you've tried to put your tie on properly or you know whatever your power power dress outfit and you're there kind of looking your best and trying to intimidate the other people and look how you've got everything together and tell the interviewees just how awesome you are and kind of lie a little bit about your past so that you can sound even more qualified for the role. See, church can sometimes look like that. But church is meant to look like the waiting room for a doctor's surgery. See, in a doctor's surgery, no one is trying to look their best. No one is trying to hide the fact that they're ill. It would be weird if you went to a doctor's and you weren't. Of course you're open. If you're going to sneeze, you're not going to be embarrassed about that. If you're going to have a rash on your skin, there's no surprise that you're in a doctor's surgery. You're sick. You need help. And that's supposed to be what church is like. When we come to church, this isn't a place where we kind of nip and tuck all the awkward bits, where we brush some of our story under the carpet, where we put on our Sunday best and pretend like there's nothing wrong with us. No, we are all sick in need of the Savior, of a healer. Is that what your experience of church looks like? The wonderful truth is that we have all sinned, but we can know the forgiveness of God. We can be clean and pure in his sight. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says this. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor basically any of us will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power and by the spirit of our God. See, all of us turned our backs on God. 
None of us can look at those lists of sins and say, hmm, well, that's not me. We are all on there. And that's a big deal because sin is a significant deal. It leads us to be separated from God. And that should strike fear into our hearts. But it need not. For when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. We are no longer defined by those things. Look in those verses, it says, that is what you were. But now because of Jesus, we are sanctified, justified, washed and clean, made new. That is who you are. We're all the same and all are welcome. Secondly, all are given the same radical call. At the heart of a Christian story is a death that leads to life. A cross and an empty tomb. The message of the gospel is that you lose your life to find it. Now what's the symbolic public act that all believers go through to show this story lived out baptism baptism now if you've ever come to a baptism you'll know that we lift off the covers from this pool in front of the stage and we dunk someone in the water fully clothed in front of everyone watching and that is weird that is really weird. If you've been coming to church for years, you're like, oh, another baptism. I wonder what the testimony will be like this time. No, no, no. If you've never seen it, that is odd. People don't take fully clothed baths in front of strangers. That's not a norm. And if you do, we'll get you some help afterwards. That is not normal. It doesn't make any sense unless you know the story behind it. And then it makes complete sense. 100% sense. See, baptism is a picture of dying. It's a bit like a funeral. As the person has been lowered into the water, it's a picture, a symbol of when Jesus was lowered into the grave as he died. And then when we do that, as we're lowered into the water, what we're saying is, I am dying to myself. I'm dying to me. I'm going to lay down everything I have. There's a death. But then the person is raised up out of the water as Jesus was raised back to life. And in that moment, it is a picture of saying, I am now alive in Christ. I am living in him. In him the old has gone, the new has come. I'm now living in a new story, a better story. I'm no longer God. I'm now living for the true and living one. I'm living for something far bigger and far better. And the reason baptism is so important is because the message is that following Jesus costs everything, but it's worth everything. Jesus is the pearl of great price. In Matthew 13, 45, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and bought it. He is the treasure. He is the one who is worthy of it all. Of giving everything for. Of dying for. And I use the word die intentionally because Jesus says in Luke 9.23, If 
anyone would come after me, let, he, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Take up his cross, that instrument of death, of sacrifice. Let him take it up daily. See, following Jesus means dying to yourself, laying down every part of your life. And we haven't always communicated this very well in our churches. We haven't. I think in a desire to see people become Christians, we've often played down the cost of coming to Christ. But the problem with doing that and playing down the cost is what you do is you play down the value of what you're giving up everything for. And as a result, we see people who would call themselves Christians, but then get very defensive when they're asked about sacrifice. They get very defensive, even though they would say they're Christians, they say, well, sacrifice my time... No, no, no. Sacrifice my money. Give generously. Maybe in a few years, but no. What are you doing asking me about money? See, people who would say they're Christians but haven't discovered Christ. The treasure worth giving everything for. And when it comes to sex, it's the same. We offer everything. We offer our bodies our sex lives, our relationships, and say, God, I know that you're good, and now I'm living for you, and so I choose your way and not mine. And God is clear. Sex is exclusively something for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. This is the teaching from the beginning of time, throughout the scriptures, the view held by Jesus and Paul and through, by believers exclusively throughout church history. This is the story. So that means as someone who's not married, sex is something off the cards unless that changes. And that can be hard to hear. It can be difficult to take in. What I've just said is now an offensive and foreign concept to many in 2020, it feels for many like an unreasonable cost, an unreasonable to demand to ask of anyone. And I've personally experienced the cost firsthand. I've experienced some of it for myself. As someone who's never married and lived my whole life without sex, watching friends, celebrities talking about how awesome sex is, Seeing life go by year after year without it myself, I've found it difficult at times, of course. It hasn't always been easy. But you know, in many ways, it hasn't been that tricky. Why? Because what I've just said doesn't fit at all with the cultural narrative. Well, the reason I've found living without sex and sacrificing it for God not too difficult is because, and I'll say this until people start believing it, you don't need sex. You don't need it. It's not like a glass of water or food. You can live without it and not kind of faint from exhaustion or explode with hormones. You're fine. You can live without it. Our culture doesn't believe it, but it's true. You don't need sex. What you need is intimacy. And I have experienced that intimacy from my relationship with God and from the family of God. And this is the truth too for my mate John. 
is someone who's attracted to the same sex. He too has responded to the call of Jesus to lay down everything, to pick up his cross and receive something far greater. John has said, look, I'm, I'm going to live a life where I lay down sex and marriage for Jesus. Give it all for him because he is worth it. And that's how John plans to live. Unless God changes his affections, which he's not expecting. And nor is that the primary goal or prayer of his life. Because heterosexuality is not the goal of the Christian life. Jesus is. Heterosexuality is not the goal of the Christian life. Jesus is. Jesus is the destination. He is our focus, our love, the one which makes all others pale into comparison. He is the prize. He is the prayer. He is our love. Rachel Gilson says this. For people like me who experience same-sex attraction, the world begs us to believe that our authentic selves are only found in giving in. It promises hero status if we submit to our attractions. Our desires whisper like a serpent in a garden that there is no death in going against God's will, God's word. This serpentine tongue drawing us towards sin speaks a native language to each one of us and offers each a tailored temptation, maybe a neighbor, an office mate, or a friend's wife. But there is good news. Jesus really is more beautiful, more worthy, and more satisfying than anything else. Same-sex attractive believers, assaulted as we are from right and from left, need to taste and see that the Lord is good. We must experience this never-ending person who delights in us and delights in righteousness. At the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, I give you everything and it is good. But there are two trees. You can eat from anywhere else, just not from these two. And you will flourish. But then a snake whispered a lie. He twisted words. He said, who is God to say what's best for you, Eve? I mean, did he really say that? And the lie is as old as time. It's not a 2020 thing. The lie is that you can have something better than what God has offered. You can define your own truth, even if it's different from what God says is best. And we can start feeling tempted to believe the devil's whisper too. When he says, did God really say that? Do those verses in the Bible really mean that? Surely we know better now. We've moved on. We've progressed. But despite the deceptive whisper of the serpent, despite the whisper of our society, the truth, the good news is that God's way is always better. Always the one who made you, your creator, knows what's best. And he wants you to have it. He's not holding back good things from you. His ways give us life and life to the full. And his ways lead to freedom. 
Thirdly, we can have freedom. This life isn't all there is. This life isn't all there is. And that is the most freeing thing you can ever hear. You don't have to squeeze everything into however many years you get on this planet. You don't have to get married. You don't have to have an incredible sex life or even have sex at all. Those are temporary things in a fleeting life. You don't have to be popular. You don't have to be liked by the culture who might not like you or might reject you if you don't think and feel as they do. See, God is crazy about you. He is in love with you and is preparing for you an eternal home. And that eternal life starts now. We can start to taste what it means to no longer be defined by marriage or singleness or by sex or some sexual identity or by the opinions of our culture. We have a new home. We have a new king. We have a new way of living. And you know what? That is not one that evolves with cultural tides. That comes and goes with matters of opinion. We have an eternal home that we can receive upon death. Where we will be forever and ever. Where you'll never get bored. You'll never be lonely. you never feel like you're missing out. That is our home. That is our destination. That is what we are living for. And that brings such freedom to our lives and brings such freedom to our world that so desperately needs it. We began by talking about the universe. And that's where we're going to end tonight. Last month on Twitter, Atheist Forum said this. Christianity... Belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion years in diameter, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. To some, the thought of an almighty God being interested in your life just sounds ridiculous. It sounds too good to be true. This tweet is made as a disparaging remark. How could, how could a God that big be interested in little old you? It's too good to be true. But it isn't. It's not just some fairy tale invented by ancient people who wanted to feel special about themselves. The truth is that we didn't just show up and come from nothing. The truth is that there isn't no value to your life or intrinsic worth. The truth is that you are not just floating through a meaningless galaxy. The truth is that the God who made the galaxies made you. The hands that threw stars into space knitted you together in your mother's womb. You are not insignificant. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. You're not just a clump of cells hurtling through the universe, but have been fearfully and wonderfully made by a creator who delights in you. And who longs to be in relationship with you. Or perhaps it would have been good, too good to be true. A huge and all-powerful God interested in these tiny human beings on a tiny planet. Perhaps it would have been hard to believe if he cared for us, if he never came close. So he did. He entered into humanity. He took on flesh, a human body. He became one of us. He laughed and he cried. He went to weddings and funerals. 
He knew what it meant to mourn, to celebrate. And he ate with sinners. He didn't avoid them. He came close to outcasts. He didn't shun them. He drew near to those who everyone said were unclean. And then the hands that healed lepers and comforted the broken, the hands that made atoms and formed planets and threw stars into space, those hands were nailed to a cross. The question of how much does God love those that he created was answered. In his outstretched arms on the cross, Jesus showed us this. This is how much you mean to me. And today, Jesus' invitation is there for you. He says, come to me. Everyone is welcome. Not a single person is excluded. No matter how you identify, no matter what your story, no whatever, whatever you have been through, all are welcome to come. Come and die to yourself and be raised again into new life. It will cost you everything. But what you get back is worth so much more. That's the invitation. That's the story of the universe for you and for me. Let's pray. Just invite you to close your eyes and open up your heart. What story are you living in? There's all sorts of opinions, cultural changes, controversies, tweets, backlashes, all sorts, all the the fuzziness of this world. Let's cut right to the middle. What is life all about? Who defines your story? What gives you value? What are you living for and why? Oh Jesus, we thank you that you're here right now by your presence, by your spirit. You're not a far off, distant, angry God. You are near and present right now. God, you know every moment of every one of our lives, every thought known and hidden, and yet you draw near. God, I thank you that your invitation is for all. God, I ask for those of us who would say that we know you, that we live for you. Would we truly see you as that treasure? the pearl of great price. God, I ask for that. If there's any of us here who say, yeah, I'm, I'm all for Jesus, yet actually maybe not that part of my life. Maybe not my, my sex life or what I do with money or alcohol or this or that. God, if there's anything we say that you are not worthy of, God, we just ask, would you remind us of your beauty once again? That you are worthy of it all. Would we truly die to ourselves and live in you? And would this be a community, Lord, here at New Community, where we know just how much we need you?
that we can talk openly about our sins and struggles. We can confess our sins and wrestle well. And that shame is far away from this place. And Lord, I lift up just anyone here who says, you know what, I don't know God for myself. Lord, I thank you that you invite us to know the way, the truth, and the life. In a culture that is telling us that we define our truth, thank you that there is a better story, a better way, a better life, and a better truth. Lord, I thank you that your invitation is for all. That anyone here tonight who doesn't know you can come to you, just as they are, and you'll welcome them into your arms. Lord, I thank you that we don't need to be defined by the opinions of our culture, the opinions of our friends, or our family. You're the eternal God, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And I ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on eternity. That we would not live for this life, but forevermore. Thank you that you are worth it, God. You are worth everything. We say we love you, God. And would our lives show that too? Amen. Amen.